Hey Tennis fam, we want to welcome all of you to our 16th edition of Tennis Tuesday. We have a great show in store for all of you. Now, I know you guys know it's meant to be the week after Roland Garros. We were meant to have finished the tournament this past weekend. That did not happen, of course. The French Open sent for later this year. But we have a really great show in store for you with a couple of a few pertinent conversations of the issues that we're facing today as a society. So we're very, very excited about that. I, as usual, my name is Nick McCarville, and as usual, her name is Blair Henley, but Blair, I'm, I'm wor a little worried about your graphics right now. Um, we're, <laughs> we're struggling over here, Nick. Minutes before we went on together today, I spilled a whole cup of Coke Zero all over my very fancy graphics, which I guess good news, I'm gonna have to, to get my creative juices flowing so that we have new graphics for you all next week. So, so try to get, don't get too excited about that, Nick. <laughs> I'm, I'm very excited. I, I keep trying to get you to switch to coffee, so the Coke Zero is maybe a, a little bit of um, voodoo work from Nick McCarvel. Uh, that's, that's what I get, uh, no doubt. But Nick, always great to see your face. Um, I, as you said, we have some really fantastic guests today. That actually means you are going to be hearing a little bit less from us, but it is for good reason. We are going to be joined by two-time Roland Garros finalist, former world number four, famed Rafa vanquisher at RG09, Robin Soderling. It was really interesting uh, to hear what he had to say. We're also gonna be talking to Washington Post sports reporter, Ava Wallace. Uh, she has covered just about everything in the world of sports, but these past couple of weeks, she's been in Louisville covering the Black Lives Matter protests. Again, I mean, so very cool to hear her perspective and how she relates it to the world of sport. Uh, and we're also going to be talking to American Sasha Vickery. She's been ranked as high as number 74 in the world, has always been incredibly outspoken on the topic of racism, in particular as it applies to athletes and social media. She gave us her thoughts on, on really what tennis needs to do in order to move forward and what maybe the new normal is going to look like when we all come back uh, to tour as we know it. Um, so with that, Nick, I have to ask you, as I always do, how are you? Wellness check time. Yeah, Blair, well done there, previewing the great show that we have in store for you guys. And actually the wellness check, I think for me, relates to that. We chose for this show to be more pertinent in the issues that we're all facing right now. There's been some really fantastic discussions in the tennis sphere, which I've, um, I've been really proud of in general. I've been trying to figure out, I think for myself, Blair, how I can be an activist, how I can use my social media for good, how I can learn. I'm trying to learn through this whole process. A lot of reading, a lot of looking to my community for what they can teach me, and that includes both people of color and also my white friends who are more activists, more of activists than I might be. Um, so it's been a, a week of learning. Um, and I just have to say, you tweeted this when we finished the interviews, but um, we were so buoyed by these chats with Sasha, Ava, and Robin today, so I'm really excited about that for all of you guys to um, to see, to check out, to hear. That's coming up later in the episode, but um, Blair Henley, how are you? Uh, Nick, I mean, really, I can just echo pretty much exactly what you said. Kind of that same thing is, is there's, there have been a lot of conversations. Um, I've talked to a lot of people who, whose viewpoints sort of span the whole spectrum. I've, I've learned a lot. Uh, from my black friends, not not just over the past couple of weeks. I feel like I, I really have 
tried to, to always be sort of learning from them, knowing that they've had an experience that I will never be able to relate to. Um, so yes, a lot of the learning happening on my end as well. Uh, on a much lighter note, my parents are visiting, um, so it's been really great uh, to see them as well. <laughs> I got to play tennis with my dad a couple of days ago, which is always, which is always nice for me and, and something that, uh, I don't know if he knew when I was little and he was teaching me how to play tennis that he was creating his own practice partner for later in life, but, <laughs> but that's sort of what it's become. So that's been, that's been really nice. Nick, thank you for asking. Uh, and, yeah. And I know that, Blair, I know that your girls love when the, do they call them grandma and grandpa? What are they, what are yeah, they called? Grampy and sugar. Um, so. <laughs> I, I forgot that. Sugar. Grampy and sugar, which, which by the way, has, has kind of morphed into sugs or sugi. Um, so people probably look at my kids and are like, what, what are they, what are they saying? <laughs> They're going to have some explaining Can to I... do when they get older. I just have the smallest aside, which is I'm in my family when the kids are little. I have nieces and nephews who are older now, but I've always been Uncle Boo Boo. I don't know why that is, but my brother is here from San Francisco with his two little ones. I am Uncle Boo Boo to them, but the one is four and that has morphed into Uncle Boobs. Hey, Boobs. How you doing, boobs? <laughs> they <laughs> so may that's have more been, that's my to do than my kids. <laughs> um, okay, enough of that. We've got a little bit of tennis to talk about today in our favorite segment. It's time for takeaway time. And Blair, there's been there's going to be some big news, I think, throughout the week within the tennis sphere. But let's really focus in on the U.S. Open. You've got a lot of details there. And then we'll get to those chats that we've been talking about. Yeah, Nick, about a week ago, uh, Christopher Clary uh, wrote an article in The New York Times talking about how the USTA is pondering this idea of a tournament bubble um, where Cincinnati would actually be held at the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center. And, and that would be held back to back with the U.S. Open. A few other things that were mentioned there, um, there would be consistent tests throughout the event. Um, the players would be staying in hotels closer to the site, which Nick, as you know, we, we well, you, I don't know, have, Nick, have you stayed close to the site? I know I have. No, that's, yeah, I haven't done I, it before. I have to say there, we're gonna talk a little bit more about how the players feel about that concept, but as somebody who's done it, y'all, it is nice to not have to drive to Manhattan at, uh, <laughs> at the end of the night, for sure. Uh, there is also going to be, you know, they're talking about having to reserve your time in the locker room. You would, of course, be reserving your practice time as well. And, and the one note that has sort of made the most waves is talk of, of only bringing one team member with you for the duration of <laughs> the tournament. And uh, <laughs> Nick, I have a few quotes for you here. Uh, Donna Vekic actually in this article said it's okay to play without fans, but that really the worst thing is if we can only come with one team member. Perhaps my favorite quote in the story was uh, on the heels of the conversation about only bringing one team member and Sven Gronefeld, of course, uh, coach to many top players, said, quote, they will panic, I tell you. Um, and I apologize if you can hear that sound. I have no idea what that is coming from my home. Uh, but yes, anyway, uh, Sven Gronefeld, they will panic. And uh, Novak Djokovic sort of, panic is a strong word, but he did call the measures extreme. He can't sort of fathom the idea of not having the physio, the trainer, the coach, and, and the other massive people that make up a team at the very top level. 
Dan Evans, in response to that, uh, and here's another quote from him, he spoke to Simon Fuller and BBC. It's obviously not all about the money, it's health involved here, but it's safe enough. I don't, but if it's safe enough, I don't think having just a coach is good enough reason to not be going to a tournament. Uh, and Rafa also weighed in on this. He said, if you ask me today if I want to travel to New York to play in a tennis tournament, I will say no. I will not. Um, and uh, Rafa also said that he wants to make sure that all players can travel, which is a concern that we all have as well, is making sure that if one player can go and compete and earn money, that the rest of the players can go and compete and earn money as well. But uh, you have a range of responses here, Nick. Yeah, well, I think first off, I do like the idea of Cincinnati and the U.S. Open together under one roof. I mean, I think that there's a lot to make that work, Blair, but I think that they're off to the right idea because I think you and I were talking about, especially for lower-ranked players, to do all of this travel just to lose in the first round or the first round of qualifying. And the idea of the bubble tournament, I think, can be intimidating, but if they do it right it can be really well done. So I, I'm all for that. I think Rafa, who did a press conference with a lot of our colleagues mm -hmm. just last week, I think he was a little bit dour. Maybe people felt like he was being negative or pessimistic. I just think he's being realistic. We have so many issues that we're dealing with in COVID-19 and the pandemic that of course we want sports to come back. We're watching our colleagues in the NFL uh, talk about the fall season, the NBA, the NHL. They're all making plans to do what they can to bring live sports back. But tennis has that extra layer of challenge in it being so beautifully international. And so I think the challenge is there. I, I, I don't know what it feels like to be a top player. I, I certainly don't know how that feels to win Grand Slams, to go deep, to have a team around me. But if you're not coming to the U.S. Open because you're only allowed one person in your camp, so be it. I just feel like the tennis should always do the talking and every athlete walks out onto the court to play their best game. And so I just that the quote from Donna Vekic actually did uh, surprise me a little bit. And again, Blair, you'd have more experience with this being a division one top college player of how that pressure feels when you have a team around you and maybe that gets taken away. Um, I think the USTA is doing everything they can to stage this tournament. I also thought it was interesting that the FFT came out in the last week saying that they have no apologies about kind of cutting line to make sure that they got their spot to play the French Open later this fall. Guy Forger did say, Blair, that it's something that they wanted to do because they felt like it was an opportunity to present the players with the best prize money that they could. And the other caveat to that is that prize money might be different because you don't have as much of a buy-in from sponsors. The TV deals might be, I'm not sure, the TV deals might be a little bit different. You don't have ticket sales. Um, so there's a, a lot of different sub-issues around this one issue. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I thought that was interesting that they threw in the prize money for the players as well. I, I certainly hope that was one of the reasons, but we, we've been pretty realistic about this on Tennis Tuesday is that Yes, it is it's huge for the players. The players are the priority. There would be no tennis tour without the players, but it is its own little economy. And there are so many people who work in the sport of tennis who are hurting right now. And Roland Garros is like its own little bubble in that sense, is that there are a lot of people who will be affected, players and people who work for the FFT and beyond, if that tournament were to you know happen or not happen. But I, John Wertheim actually tweeted, uh, an interesting sort of game theory proposition is if you have 
Rafa and Djokovic saying that they don't really want to come. Uh, we don't really know where Roger Federer stands exactly on that quite yet. Do you, how do you work it? Do you say, do you hold and wait to see who's coming before you decide to go? Do you like to, do you want to wait and see if perhaps other members of the big three are not going to be there? I thought that was a little interesting thing to think about, Nick. Yeah, totally. And my response to that would be much the same as a tennis match itself, as you keep the blinders on. We're going to hear yes. that later from Robin Zotterling about not thinking about what other guys or girls are doing in the locker room and just focus on what you feel is safe. And the biggest thing right now is that we have to take this pandemic seriously, which I, I think tennis obviously has up to this point. The greater challenge that tennis faces is being so mobile and being so international. That's two things that especially for you American fans and a lot of you fans watching worldwide who have domestic national sports that you follow and love, tennis is different. And so that's that's really going to be the bag, borrow and steal, the figuring out how we do have these events. Full stop. Uh, and Nick, you mentioned sort of the domestic aspect of that. We did get to talk to an American today to talk about what is going on. I, I mean, on, on so much of a broader scale, tennis seems, seems like a little blip on the radar right now compared to what is going on in our country. Our first guest today, Nick, is Sasha Vickery. As we mentioned, she's been ranked inside the top 75 in the world. She's the winner of three ITF singles and two ITF doubles titles. And you may remember, as I do, her incredible win over then world number three, Garbine Muguruza at Indian Wells in 2018. Uh, she brings that fire to whatever she does. Uh, and we're gonna start off our conversation with her by taking a look at a video she posted on social media. Check your privilege edition. Put a finger down if you have been called a racial slur. Put a finger down if you've been followed in a store unnecessarily. Put a finger down if someone has crossed the street to avoid passing you. Put a finger down if you've had someone clinch their purse in an elevator with you. Put a finger down if you've had someone step off of an elevator to keep from riding with you. Put a finger down if you've been accused of not being able to afford something expensive. Put a finger down if you have had fear in your heart when being stopped by the police. Put a finger down if you have never been given a pass on a citation that you deserved. Put a finger down if you have been stopped or detained by police for no valid reason. Put a finger down if you have been bullied solely because of your race. Put a finger down if you have been denied service solely because of the color of your skin. Put a finger down if you've ever had to teach your child how not to get killed by the police. Any fingers left? That's privilege. Well, Sasha, thanks so much for joining us. And first off, I have to say that video of you and Grandma Betty, I love Grandma Betty, first off. But it was, it was really powerful, that video and the message, I think, that it sent to a lot of people. Why did you feel like you wanted to post that? Oh, well, thank you for having me, first of all. Um, and you know I just felt like um, I just needed to try and make a video to make people a little bit more aware of the difference between white privilege and um, you know maybe some people aren't as educated on it or they really don't think it's something that exists so I just came up with the idea I'm always going over her house and we always have these conversations about these different kind of things and um and she's actually jewish and she's shared so many experiences she had that she's had and um yeah so i just figured it was a good a good moment to make a video like that at this time it's been a big couple of weeks obviously for a lot of people there are some heavy hearts around this country right and people are really 
I think having a, a point of inflection for you um, and for those of us, Sasha, that aren't in the Black community, that aren't a part of the Black community, we've been doing a lot of listening ourselves and we've seen a lot of people within the tennis community speaking out so pointedly. What sort of listening have you been doing and then what has that turned the action into what you've wanted to do on your own social media channels? Um, yeah, I, you know, for years I've been kind of a big um, advocate for Black Lives Matter movement and a lot of other movements. So I just feel it's really important that, um, you know, anyone that has any kind of platform share share these things because there's a lot of people looking up to us and we have we have a voice and you know at some point so i you know i always try to do my best to to make sure people you know they just realize right from wrong and and they're just able to you know even if they don't know a lot about it you know some of my friends they don't even you know they're not that knowledgeable about some of the things that are going on and i've had talks with them and we've you know, they've asked me, you know, what is this like? How does it feel to go through something like this? Because personally, I'll never be able to relate. And, you know, I've been able to educate so many people and send articles. So I just think it's something that's important, um, you know, especially if you have friends that are that are different races, different backgrounds, which I have a lot of. Um, so for me, it's just something personal that's important. And Sasha, you've been bold about this in the past, as you mentioned, you have stood up against racism, in particular, uh, what you've experienced on social media. A couple of years ago, I remember a specific tweet that you sent out actually saying, hey, this is it. I'm going to call you out if, if I get any racist feedback on my yeah. social media. Did you see any positive response from that? What was the reaction? And did you have any reservations about speaking out in that way? I did a little bit in the beginning. Um, you know, I'm actually, I'm, I'm not... Um, I'm not the most outgoing, you know, kind of person that would speak up about those things. And especially years ago, I was a little bit, you know, more quiet and reserved. But um, I just feel like at some point, you know, and especially being a tennis player, we receive, you know, a lot of messages and um, we get a lot of nasty comments and, you know, things like that. So we're used to it. But I feel like um, it just gets to a point where, you know, if you don't want it to to have an effect on you, I feel like you do have to talk about that stuff and you know, you shouldn't keep it bundled inside. And so I just, you know, I just figured, okay, one day I was like, okay, I've had enough. And I just started confronting these people and letting them know that it's not okay to bully people online. It's not okay to say these things, um, you know, about people of color or, or anyone in general. And, you know, it was just pretty much one day I just got up and I was just like, you know, I'm tired of, of being quiet and you know these people should be held accountable for saying these things because personally it doesn't you know it doesn't affect me that much but there may be someone that they're really affected by this and you don't know how they're going to react so that was that was the main point for me that's awesome and obviously racism needs to be addressed as a society and you've been a part of that but in tennis specifically what sort of progress needs to be achieved in the years to come um, I do think, um, I definitely think we need to see more people of color playing tennis. I think, um, you know, we've just, for some reason, tennis has always just been a very, you know, predominantly white sport. And um, I think seeing more people of color, seeing more diversity in tennis would be something that maybe the WTA and the ITF can, you know, kind of come together and try to 
you know, try to you know, just brainstorm and, and put ideas together how we can just make it more inclusive for everyone. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how they'll they'll be able to do that or implicate that, but I think I think that should be something that can really be looked at, and you know something can definitely be done about that. And I, I think that's a great point. And I think one thing we're seeing, Sasha, with this that I hope the tennis organizations, the big tennis bodies, will take notice of, is mm -hmm. the way that you and your brothers and sisters of the Black community have been speaking out and using your voice and. It's kind of been this interesting inflection point, I think, on tour where maybe this generation hasn't been that politically outspoken in tennis. And here's a moment yeah. where we have people like you, like Coco mm -hmm. Goff, Naomi Osaka, Francis TFO, Serena, Felix Auger, Aliasim, mm -hmm. people really using their platform. What has that been like for you to watch the way that black tennis players have really spoken up in this moment? It's been amazing. Uh, I think people, some people that I, really <laughs> never thought would have spoken up about these things they've really come forward and you know people are really listening i feel like there's a real shift kind of happening you know in the midst of all this craziness um and i i just i just think it's really good and and we need to um you know i think everyone everyone involved should definitely make more of an effort to make this a priority and um just really understand where uh people are people of color are coming from. And I think they've done such a great job. You know, Naomi has tweeted so much. She's been to some of the protests. Coco, she went to the protests here in Delray. I live I live nearby. So um, I just think it's been really good and people are just starting to see, they're starting to understand and they're starting to really feel change. So I think it's really good. Well, Sasha, I just want to personally say thank you to you. Um, it just, there have been so many people who have spoken out and it's been a learning experience for me and I think a, a whole lot of other people. So thank you for that. Uh, and on a much, much lighter note, uh, we, we talked a little before we got started today. You're back on the court, um, yes. which, which is positive. So how are you feeling in terms of your tennis and, and how much are you looking forward to actually getting back, playing a competitive tournament, hopefully soon? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'm really, really excited. Um, I played an exhibition last week in, in Atlanta and I got to play a few matches. So I'm back at practice slowly and uh, I got a feel of, you know, where I was at physically. It was a little bit tough, but I was just happy to be out there, happy to be playing matches again. And I can't wait to get back out there. Of course, the safety and is the first priority for everyone. So I, I know the WTA is working really hard to put put together the tournaments, but they want to make it safe. And, you know, they definitely don't want to put anyone at risk. So I'm, I'm happy to be getting back out there under safe conditions. And I think it's really good. Well, we look forward to a much more awesome social content from you, Sasha, from afar. Um, we look forward to the person. Before we leave you, is Jack still next to you? We've yes, heard, Jack we heard is a little still here. Come on, Jack. Can, can, can he make a cameo? <laughs> yes. Oh, Jack. Jack. oh my gosh. <laughs> well, again, Sasha and Jack, thank you both so much for joining us uh, and enjoy the rest of your week. We hope to see you in person soon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Bye. All right. Great to hear from Sasha. We obviously appreciate her perspective and really appreciate her giving us some time there. And Blair, it also has been a week in which we've really seen, we we're talking about this last week, but even more so from some of the top tennis stars in the world really using their platforms to speak out in ways that we haven't really seen before. Serena does a weekly chat on her social media. She had her husband, Alexis Ohanian, who's been really big in the tech world, obviously, as the founder of Reddit. He has stepped aside from the board 
for Reddit and has asked to be replaced by an African-American, by a black individual. And so I think that was a huge moment for him. They talked a lot about that. And I think Serena, obviously, uh, we haven't really, Serena using her platform in a way I don't think we've quite seen before, which I think is really special. We also had in this last week, the ATP and WTA's Tennis United show. It featured Francis Tiafo and Taylor Townsend, both sharing some very personal insight from the experiences that they've had on the tennis tour. And then Blair, I appreciated you sharing on social or on Twitter what you've seen on social media of Tommy Paul and Riley Opelka, who haven't really been politically active whatsoever. They were in attendance at a LA protest over the weekend. Uh, yeah, no, it's been encouraging uh, to see what, what Riley has posted over the past couple of weeks. Um, what Taylor had to say on Tennis United for me was, was particularly poignant, um, just pretty much saying she's been mistaken for every other black tennis player on tour and that she doesn't really think things are going to change. Um, and in that respect, maybe she's being realistic, um, I, you know, the optimist in me, which is a small part of me, hopes that hopes that we can say we've seen progress. I do think people who haven't been thinking about these things or talking about them previously are now. So to me, even if that's just a tiny little thing, I think maybe that's a small step in the right direction, but really great to hear uh, from all of those players. And, and on a completely different note, we got to talk to another former player uh, on the heels of, as you said, what would have been the end of Roland Garros. We spoke with two-time Roland Garros finalist, as I said, and uh, the man who famously beat Rafa Nadal at the 2009 Roland Garros to reach the, his first final there. He gave us some really great insight on a range of topics, but started off with this really fun video about what's taking up his time at the end of his days. Hello guys, it's Robin here. So this has turned into my daily evening routine, playing tennis on the street outside our house with my daughter. Olivia, say, say hi. Hi. Apparently the daily tennis training is not enough for her. She wants to play more. So every evening I have to spend 30 to 60 minutes playing tennis with her on the street, which is nice. I haven't played this much tennis since actually I quit playing tennis myself eight years ago. It's tough, it's tough guys, but it's a lot of fun. Robin Soderling, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I feel like the first question of any interview is pretty easy these days because we all just wanna know how you're doing. It's obviously been an unprecedented time over the past three months. How are things in Sweden and how are you and your family? I mean, we are good. Uh, we all been healthy, which is which is great. Uh, and of course, it's been tough in in Sweden as well as as in most of the countries in in the whole world. But I think uh, Sweden hasn't been that locked down as many other countries. People are still getting on with their life, of course, with with restrictions. But it's it's been okay. It's been tough for many. You know, we had a lot of a lot of cases with with sick people, a lot of deaths, unfortunately. Uh, but it's been it's been okay. In the beginning, I was expecting it to be much worse. You know, when you heard the news, everyone was terrified. Uh, but it's been okay. But of course, it's a tough situation here as as anywhere else. Well, if if things were normal right now, we would be fresh off Roland Garros. Yeah. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. If this year we had a rematch of last year's final on the men's side, Rafa Nadal, Dominic Team. Knowing Rafa and playing him the way that you do and, and very few others do, 
How would you coach Dominic Team if he had a rematch at Roland Garros against Rafa? I mean, uh, I would tell him to be uh, to be aggressive, uh, go for his shots. You know, especially use his uh, shots down the line. You know, he has a great back end to use that down the line, uh, and to stay a little bit closer to the baseline, uh, maybe. You know, it's difficult against Rafa, especially on clay when you have those really long, uh, long rallies, you know, and, and as soon as he gets a short ball, he's so good at executing uh, the winner from there. Um, so I think you have to be uh, really aggressive. But I think team, as you said, he's actually one of the players that I think can have a good chance to beat Rafa on clay. Robin, staying on sort of that Roland Garros topic, obviously tremendous win for you there in 09 to get to the final. Uh, that's been talked about, I, th I think, for years over Rafa, of yeah. course. But then you backed that up in 2010. You made it to the final once again. And one thing we wanted to point out is you really felt like when you stepped on the court that you could play with anyone in the world, that you could beat Rafa on clay, that you could take on Federer and now Djokovic in this era. But... I'm curious for you where that confidence came from, how much you felt like it helped you, and is that maybe something that's just missing a little bit for these players outside of the big three on the tour right now? Well, yeah, I talked about it before. You know, so many times I see uh, really good players, top 10 players, they go into a match against Roger, Rafa, or Novak, or, or any of the top guys, and you can really feel that they don't maybe they don't believe that they will win to 100% you know of course they hope to win uh, but some of them are there to you know in the beginning just to to have a good match you know have a good score line and i think that's really important to to every time you go on court you have to show yourself and you have to show your opponent that they are, you are there to actually win the match you know if if you're going to beat me today you have to play well and you have to beat me i'm not going to beat myself but of course, you know, Roger, Novak and Rafa, they've been outstanding for so many years. So, of course, it's difficult and every, all, all the other players see them winning so much. So mentally, it's, it's difficult, but I think it's maybe one of the most important things mentally before a game against these guys. Yeah, it's absolutely massive. Um, Robin, I don't even know if you would have heard this or seen this, but Joe Wilfred Sanga said recently that a lot of the guys in the locker room knew that Rafa wasn't feeling well in 2009 at the French Open. Was that something that you were aware of or was that you you had your blinders on and you were just focused on the match that you had to play in that fourth round that day? Uh, no, I was really focused. And I think that was one of my strengths as a player. You know, I was really focused on myself, my own game. You know, if you see a player that is not, that has some problems with something and you start to think about that too much, uh, it's really difficult to play and I never did that so I, I didn't see anything against Rafa but also with Rafa he would he's a player that would fight till the end no matter what kind of problems he has and I think there's always explanations to every time you win or lose a match you know there's always an explanation and I think all the players you know the tennis is a tough sport seasons are so long so it's rarely that you feel 100% before any game. I played so many matches in my career where I had some small injuries, where I had some problems. But the sport is that that you really have to overcome that. And, and, 
and of course during my career I gave up I retired a few times but every time I was on court uh, no matter if I felt perfect or had some small injuries I always I was there to win and I felt that if I step on court you know I'm healthy enough to play. I think one of the most incredible I guess um, examples of that is the last tournament you ever played. You had mono at the time in Bashad and you won the tournament. And, and that ended up being the last match you played. So how, how sick were you feeling there to actually go on and, and raise the cup at the end? I mean, that was strange because actually my problem started that same year in Indian Wells in February, March started to feel uh, a little bit sick and it went off and on for a couple of months or a few months. And then uh, I felt really bad at Wimbledon, I remember. Uh, so I wasn't, I, I wasn't going to play Boston. I decided to go down there just uh, one or two days before my first match. And I started to feel a little bit better. And actually during that tournament, I felt okay. But it was just as soon as after the final or a day after, I started to feel extremely sick again. So maybe that was really stupid of me to play there you know i should i should just have rested for a month or two and then maybe maybe i don't know maybe i i would have still played i don't well, know not many people can say they won the last uh, tournament they ever played no it's me and uh, i know pete sampras won the us open right so it's, exactly uh, at least exactly. it's better than losing my last my last match that is true uh shifting gears just a little bit back to what we were talking about having played all three of the big three and knowing their games the way that you do do you uh do you want to weigh in on the goat debate and who you think will end up being the greatest of all time when it's all said and done well it depends how you measure greatest of all time um they're both unbelievable players and i think it's just extraordinary that i think in my opinion three of the best or maybe the three best players in the history are playing at the same time it's been uh, extremely difficult for all the other players ranked from four down to 10 or, or 20 in the world but also they did a lot for they did a lot for the sport uh, for me it was Federer was my most difficult opponent I'm not saying that he's better than the other two but his game didn't suit my game well, you know, against Roger, against Novak and Rafa, you always kind of know what to expect when you go on court with them. Uh, they do it extremely well, but at least you know how the match going to look like. Federer has the ability to mix up his game. He can change tactics so well. Uh, and that's why it was more, more difficult for me to play against him. I remember I played him many times and, it was not many of many times of those matches where I felt I played well uh, against Novak and Rafa. I could feel that even if I lost, I could go off the court and feel that oh, it was a good match. He was just better than me. But against Roger, it was he's extremely good. But it's also so difficult to play well against him because he makes you uncomfortable on court. Huh. I love that perspective. Blair and I will often talk about the goat debate, and it's. Um, it's good to have someone who's actually played all these guys so many times. Yeah. Actually, um, I think someone asked me before and who's going to win the most Grand Slams uh, when they end up their career. And I said Djokovic. Now, you know, we, we don't know how long this is going to go on. You know, maybe they're losing a year now, which is not good for, for either of them. But uh, Novak is playing really well. He's the younger of the three and now he's healthy. So I think he has the best chance. But I don't know. 
Yeah, I, I think uh, very few people would disagree with you on the Grand Slam count for sure. Um, I'm curious to, you've been so busy. We were talking before we hit record on RS Tennis, which is your line of tennis equipment. You've now expanded to other sports. You've got two little kids. Yeah. You've been a tournament director. You've been a coach. What's keeping you busy these days, Robin? So I'm working a lot with RS, of course. It takes up a lot of time and also... Uh, for this year, I started as the Swedish Davis Cup captain, which uh, we played one match. Uh, we beat Chile, so we qualified for Madrid. But after that, it hasn't been much. You know, we couldn't do any training. We couldn't do any anything organized with the federation. So it's been uh, it's been a little bit less. But hopefully, we'll start again, and hopefully, they will play in Madrid this year. That would be great. You know, Sweden is back in the in the World Group again for the first time since. Basically, when I played, I think nine nine years ago, uh, which is great. I think we belong there. So, still a lot of tennis for me, as you said. I tried a lot of different things, everything in tennis, and it's funny, you know. I started to play tennis when I was four years old, and basically everything I did in my whole life was just was just playing tennis. And uh, now I'm still I'm still in the tennis world, even though I'm not playing that much anymore. Uh, but it's uh, it's tough to leave. I don't want to leave. But even if I wanted to, maybe I, I would never be able to do it. Tennis tennis has that effect on uh, on all of us, probably <laughs> in different ways. But yeah. do you do you actually go out and hit for fun these days? I do. I do. I play a couple of times a week. Sometimes more. Sometimes less. You know, there's week where I weeks where I play basically every day. Sometimes when the Emer brothers are at home, they want to practice. I practice with them. Uh, but I started to play a lot more paddle as well now. So I'm mixing between tennis and paddle now. Fantastic. It's less pressure. It's less pressure on the, ten on the paddle court. You know, on the tennis court, I get worse and worse every year. In paddle court, I can still improve. In, in paddle, it's easier, you know, because I'm, I'm starting from a low level. People love, people love paddle, right? In the States, pickleball has gotten really okay. big. But that's a different, paddle and pickleball are different, right? Yeah, so paddle is, I would say it's something in between squash and tennis. You know, you play in this glass cage and it's a smaller tennis court and you play with tennis balls, but smaller, smaller rackets. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's an easier game than tennis as well. I think that's one of the reasons why it gets so popular now in Sweden. You know, if you never played tennis before and you're picking up a racket for the first time as an adult, it takes a while before it's before it's fun because it's so difficult. With paddle, it's easier. So people enjoying it from from the first time they try it. There you go. Well, Robin, thank you so much for joining us. So interesting to hear your insight. And per our conversation before we hit record today, I'm going to finish by having you do our our viewers a little public service. Will you say your last name for everyone? Because I'm sure we are not the only ones to not know exactly the correct way to say it. So we finish this off by saying it. So it's Sir Berlin. It's there you have strange. it. <laughs> it's no, it's just, it has the O with the two dots we have in Sweden, you know, it pronounced er. Yeah. Yeah. We Americans are bastardized, bastardizing names, I think, uh, around the tennis globe. So thanks for that, Robin. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you so much. And we hope to see you in person at a tennis event soon. Likewise. Thanks a lot, guys. Have a good one. Okay, Blair, really cool there to hear from Robin Soderling. And I'm, my mind is kind of blown, the fact that he's only 35, that he was of this generation that we've seen continue to carry on here into 2020. I loved that he talked to uh, 
talk to us about being so confident on the court and bringing his best tennis. I wonder if that's one of the ingredients that's missing for some of these guys trying to challenge the big three right now. But you do wonder, because he was ranked fifth in the world when he won that last title in Bastad, as you mentioned, what could have been, and also maybe some of the personalities on tour that could be challenging the big three. We just haven't quite seen that at the at the biggest level, the top level, like we saw from him at Roland Garros. Yeah, I feel like that's one of the, the great what-ifs of tennis because he was 26, almost 27 when he played that last tournament. I mean, that's these days, he could potentially have had another decade on tour. And even when it's so, it was interesting to me that even talking to him you know, via Zoom, you can almost sort of sense the, he just has, it, and it's it's a little bit of swag. I don't know if, if that's what you would call it, but but I like it. Um, and I- A lot of bit yeah, of swag. Yeah, well, right. I, I feel like in, in a personal setting, I mean, he was absolutely fantastic, right on time for our interview and set us that fantastic video. But yeah, walking on the court, a lot of swag. Um, and and I feel like, just like you were saying, I, I appreciate the players today. There are a few of them. I think Nick Kyrgios sure walks out on the court with swag, but maybe doesn't have the other things in place to sort of back it up the rest of the way. But, but yeah, maybe that's the missing piece. So I, I'm all for a little bit of that. Yeah, well, it was great to get him on the heels of what would have been Roland Garros. Uh, nice to check in with Robin Soderling. Next up, it is our an interview special here this week on Tennis Tuesday as we've got uh, three interviews. This is our third that we're really excited to share with you. Ava Wallace has been a colleague and a friend of mine for a few years now. Blair knows her well from on tour. She's a Washington Post reporter. She mostly covers sports, does the WNBA, does tennis, does basketball. Um, but the last couple of weeks, she's been covering uh, really the Black Lives Matter movement. She went to Louisville. She's gonna detail for us here exactly why she was sent to Louisville, first for COVID-19, and then of course for coverage of Breonna Taylor and for Black Lives Matter. But um, this was a, a really great conversation that Blair and I were really pleased to have a chance to speak with Ava Wallace. Ava, thank you so much for joining us. I cannot imagine how crazy the past couple of weeks have been for you, both professionally, personally, and in particular as a DC resident. So I guess the big first question here is, how are you? That is a big question. Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, I am okay. I'm totally okay. Um, very lucky to be doing the work that I'm doing right now. I think um, something that's happened recently and just kind of dealing with all of the protests and seeing, you know, I live in DC, but it's also where I grew up, seeing my hometown um, do something like that, just thousands flock in front of the White House. It was, it's been a really hard two weeks. Um, yeah, as a black person in America, just talking to all my friends, it's been a really, really difficult two weeks and something that's helped me immensely, not only process my emotions about this, but feel a little bit less helpless is turning to my work. Um, and I am usually a sports writer for the Washington Post, but I, I got taken off of sports when sports got canceled, uh, when they just did away with the whole thing. Um, and I, was trying to find news stories and trying to find a way to help my colleagues um, who are just slammed with normal news right now um, in some way. And when I got put on an assignment down in Louisville at the beginning of April, um, it was nice then to have something to do and just have something to kind of wake up and actually work on every day rather than, oh, which Twitter post from an athlete who's not doing anything right now am I gonna write about? Um, but in particular for the past two weeks, being able to process the 
tumult and pain and anger of the country and, and all of those emotions that I'm feeling as well through my work and, and focus on that and tell people's stories and also look at this through kind of an objective lens um, has really, really helped me stay sane for sure and, and help me be less sad every day and help me be a little bit more hopeful and, and all of that good stuff. So I am, I'm really, really fortunate to, um, have my job right now one because not a lot of people in, in print media especially are, are able to say that nowadays but also to be able to um contribute in a way that, that makes me feel good ava it's, it's made us feel good too I, I mean just to watch your coverage and blair i don't even know if you know this but ava was interning at usa today sports when i was there as the tennis writer I so did we, not. yeah so we shared coverage of the 2015 U.S. Open. That's when Serena was going for the slam. And Ava, you knocked it out of the park then. I actually left for a wedding. Do you remember that? I left and yeah. Left yeah. cover the tournament. <laughs> I was like, I the classic U.S. Open experience, just like thrown into the into the deep end. Yeah, that was fun. Well, uh, to go back to what you were saying, though, um, you have been in Louisville for the past few weeks. You're back in D.C. now. But just tell us a little bit about that coverage, because you, you went initially just to check things out from a COVID-19 perspective, but then things obviously took on a much bigger meaning in the last couple of weeks in your reporting there. Yeah, the really interesting thing about this moment in, in America is of course we were all doing pandemic reporting is there's this virus that, something that we became aware of probably a couple of weeks into reading coverage I noticed um, was that the pandemic was really highlighting social inequalities in really interesting ways. And of course we were seeing that in American cities where most American cities have a history of segregation, I was telling you guys. And so we just kind of picked an American city and we liked Louisville. It's kind of in the Midwest, it's kind of in the South. Um, it's this kind of confluence of a lot of different things. And there certainly the black community was experiencing the virus quite differently from the white community, which I think is probably the case across the country. But um, it's, so it was interesting to already be looking at the city from that kind of point of view. And we had heard about this um, police shooting that had happened with Breonna Taylor because she was killed in March 13th. So it was something when we were down there in early April that people were already kind of talking about and there were murmurs and there was kind of this like, I would say simmering unrest, certainly nothing that was evident every every day, but you know, people wouldn't mention it. Um, so then in a couple of weeks ago when we got sent back and, and the protests really started happening and there was a big one in Louisville, which is not really, it's not a DC, it's not a Philly, it's not one of those cities, a lot of the locals told, told us, you know, this isn't, we're not a movement type place. This isn't something we do, gather in the hundreds of thousands downtown and, and uh, protest. So um, once that kind of George Floyd's death kicked that off, that was something that we were really well positioned to just talk to people on the ground about, about how they were feeling and what it meant. And um, so, yeah, that's kind of what I've been doing for the past two weeks, I want to say. Yeah, past about two weeks, just... Um, Kind of transitioning that recording a little bit. And Ava, how, how have you, uh, you know, because usually you're on the sports beat, right? You do tennis with us, you've done WNBA, you've done college sports, you've done a, a whole host of things in DC. Do you feel like you were well prepared to go into covering these big national societal issue stories versus um, who's leading at halftime of a Georgetown basketball game? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? They're both equally important. No. Um, it's no so offense. funny that, no, please, none taken. Um, I, I actually called up um, one of my good friends from the Post, um, who's a national reporter for us, and said, you know, I don't usually do community reporting. I don't, I, I don't know if I feel prepared for this. And he said, 
all you do all day is write what you see. I mean, we literally more than so many, you guys know more than so many different other types of journalists, when we're writing what happens in a match, all we're doing is watching and not just what's going on in the game, but who's, who's in the box has, has that crazy look on their face or we're, we're tracking emotions of people, we're tracking our surrounding. Um, so that was the biggest advice that I got was write what you see. And when you're going into communities, you know how to talk to people. We all know how to talk to people. I think something sports writers have that I have found always excites my colleagues. I, I won't say impressed, but they are. It's something new that we write so much on deadline that they're like, oh my gosh, you do that so fast. Wow. You guys do like three stories a week. And I'm like, yeah, that's a light week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the observations that we're trained to do innately have helped me more than I can say doing this type of reporting that was definitely new and a challenge for me. Um, and then of course, there's the intimidation factor. You guys know, I mean, when you guys talk to these famous professional athletes, it kind of takes all of the, all of the wind out of you and you're not really scared to go up and talk to anybody after that. But um, something that I have found that I really enjoy is, you know, you guys know too, we're, we deal with PR people and, and, red, and you know, people don't always want to talk to you. Normal people, love talking to you <laughs> and if you say will you share the, will you share these experiences with me i'd love to write about how you're feeling right now people will just open up and that's been the most truly the most beautiful thing about this experience and i i i cannot wait to return to sports coverage trust me but it has been so nice um to have people actually want it want to share with you and and want to help you tell the story of what's going on in the country right now uh, how cool. Gosh, that gives me chills a little bit. Um, but no, I, I, we would encourage all of you who are watching, please check out Ava's work in the Washington Post because it really has been really fantastic. And I'm so glad for you that you've been able to, to now kind of spread your, spread your wings sounds real cliche. I would never use that <laughs> in an actual story, but you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, it, so it's, it's been a lot of fun to watch. But when sports do return, do you think the way that they are covered is going to change? Do you think the way that athletes speak up or not is going to change? I, I hope so. I hope the way that sports are covered is going to change. I think something that we've seen just in the past couple of days, um, especially in big organizations, big newsroom like the Post, is we're all taking a look at ourselves and seeing that the racial biases and the discriminatory tendencies that we had in big companies like the Washington Post and the New York Times and all of these different places I could name. So I hope there's more emphasis on, we need to tell everybody's story. Maybe we don't need to write every game story every day and maybe we can kind of write a little bit more about what's going on around the game story. I think there's definitely been a, a big shift towards that in sports writing in general lately, but I hope, I hope that this keeps contributing to that and, and saying, you know, the game might not always be the central focus. Um, but I, I mean, I, we've seen on Twitter, especially so much the young athletes. I think we shared, we shared a couple of tweets, Nick, about Naomi and, and Maddie Keys and everybody speaking out too. Um, I, that, I think that's already changed. I think you see from what Coco's been doing, what Naomi's been doing, um, willingness for young athletes, young athletes of color to speak out has really, really impressed me. Not, maybe not necessarily surprised me, um, but it has impressed me immensely the past couple of weeks, just because I think the first tweets from Naomi that I saw, the first thing I thought of was, oh my gosh, this woman just became the highest paid female athlete ever. And like, I, 
we had just come off watching The Last Dance, the Jordan doc, where there's so much in there about how he was so reluctant to speak up because, you know, the famous line, Republicans buy shoes too. And it was a branding issue. And it was an issue of, are we going to be able to sell these athletes if they're political? And now to see Naomi Osaka, who's making, what was it, like $37 million last year or something, just like, not even, <laughs> it wasn't even a speech as written out as Coco was. She's talking about, she's just firing off what comes to her brain first. Um, so I think that's, that's what we've seen is definitely changed. And I think that's going to, because it is the younger generation, um, that's just going to keep on going from there. So this, I, I think was a huge, huge, not even turning point, but like solidification of something that had been building for a really long time. Well, Ava, thank you so much for joining us on Tennis Tuesday. Thank you for your willingness, not only to educate your readers, but to educate your friends, to educate us. We really appreciate that. Um, and we sure hope we get to see you in person soon. Thank you. You guys bring a smile to my face. So I hope I get to see you guys again soon too, whatever the next slam is. Yes. And Blair, we're going to get some colors on you. Nick, we're going to get some colors on you. Well, I need it. I need it. <laughs> I need it. So Thank yes, you. we'll do that next time. Sounds good. Thank you for having me. Thanks for your work too. I'm, I know you, you feel the same way, Blair. We're blown away by Ava. Thank you, Ava, for that. Um, your poise, how well-spoken you were there, and just the work that you're doing in general at the Washington Post, uh, we tip our caps to you. Um, and also, I mentioned this before the Ava Wallace interview itself, but we just wanted to give a different sort of Tennis Tuesday. I've had a few people asking me, why are you guys still doing weekly shows? And I, I think this week showed us that there's still plenty to talk about both inside the sport and out of it. And Blair, I think that we're really thankful to the three guests that were able to join us. Yeah, um, like you said, Nick, I tweeted it, but we, we got off the calls with each one of these people and looked at each other and we're like, that was so good. All three of them obviously <laughs> talking about slightly different things, but, but really uh, interesting things to, to be gleaned from them for sure. Really, really cool perspectives. Um, and speaking of perspectives, uh, and, and maybe even speaking of what ifs in tennis, uh, I got to speak to Marat Safin this past week as well as part of our Hall of Fame live series. And uh, we're gonna show you a little clip here. Uh, I don't know if you happen to see it, but a week, two weeks ago, uh, Tumani Cariol in The Guardian did a really great piece on Dinara Safina. And, and she was talking about her journey to world number one and getting to the top and then how it felt once she got there and then maybe realizing it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. So I asked Marat sort of that same question and here was his answer. I'm just wondering what your experience was. So you worked so hard for so many years, you get the slam, you get the world number one ranking. What is the feeling when you finally accomplish those things that were your goals for so long? Uh, well, I have to admit um, I've been I've been aiming there, but I never thought that I'm gonna get to, to that point. And then okay. when it happened, uh, when it happened for me, it was a, like a surprise that I didn't know how to deal with this. I was young, I was 20 years old, no experience, nothing. So it was too much to to handle. Mm -hmm. uh, I also won the Grand Slam, I beat Pete, and then it was like uh, something in my mind. Something uh, it was like not depression, but it's like okay, what's next? You know. It's like basically for the kid, you tell them, you give them the game, he finished the game, and then said, okay, I want a new game. But here is no new game. You need to continue this, but you need to, uh, it's going to be this game, the same game for 10 years at least. Sure. 
So it's quite difficult. And especially when you don't have anybody uh, with experience how to handle these kind of things and to, how to guide the kid uh, through that uh, moment. Uh, because it's a really delicate moment. Uh, I'm, um, for me, it was really tough. Yeah, so interesting to hear Marat's thoughts, uh, his point of view. He's, he's very open about what's going through his mind, which is, which is fun and refreshing and, and maybe a little bit scary in the Instagram live <laughs> format, but we had a lot of fun. Yeah. Also, you know, talking about his cats, it was great. We, we ran the gamut of topics. This week, we are going to be talking to Jim Courier, who, who, speaking of which, always has really, he does such a good job, and, and I see it. Uh, from this perspective because this is what we do, Nick, but I feel like Jim Courier can sort of give you the little sound bite on exactly how he feels, something <laughs> something that you guys have probably seen. We, we like to talk a lot. Jim does a really great job of sort of getting to the point, which I really appreciate. So we'll, he'll be joining us on Thursday. Yeah, and can we do a, a virtual high five for all of the Hall of Fame? The, those have been awesome. I guess, are you over here? How do we high five like this? I'm not I sure. I don't know. Um, oh, but quick correction, Nick. That's actually Wednesday this week. We're switching Hall of Fame Live from Thursday to Wednesday. So it'll be Wednesday at 3 o'clock Eastern. Cool. Talking with Jim Courier. That's awesome. Check that out on the Hall of Fame social media accounts. I also want to give a shout out. It is Pride Month. We're going to bring you some more Pride Month content here on Tennis Tuesday, but a really great feature article on Brian Vahaley on ATPTour.com this last week. Brian talking about wanting to be a leader for a younger generation of tennis players coming up, which I thought was really cool. I know that they're going to have more content from the ATP and WTA on Tennis United, which is really cool, Blair. And also, we got a little hat tip from the ITF. They featured LGB Tennis and yours truly on the work that we've done the last couple of years on that front. And Blair, I don't want to share too many details, mostly because I don't have them, but we're going to do an LGB Tennis uh, live series of some sort in the next couple of weeks. So watch this well, space. Well, I'm really glad you mentioned uh, the article on, on you, Nick, because if you guys haven't read that, it really is incredible. And that's on itftennis.com, I believe. Uh, but once again, we want to thank you guys for, for joining us this week. As, as Nick has said, and as I have said, we, we wanted to maybe talk a little less today and give you guys some more outside perspectives. And that is our goal here, um, in particular over the past couple of weeks, is just sort of to move the conversation forward um, for, for us to learn and hopefully for you all to learn from the people that we have the privilege of talking to. So thank you for giving us this space um, to do that. Yeah, totally, you guys. You can check out Tennis Tuesday on Facebook and YouTube. You can also follow us on It's Tennis Tuesday on Instagram. And we're on Anchor as a podcast. Thanks, as always, to you, Blair, for helping steer the Tennis Tuesday ship. I think we're going to have some big U.S. Open news yeah. here in the next couple of weeks. We're going to be watching that space and much more. And to all of you who are protesting in no matter which way, standing up for what you believe in and what you feel is true in your hearts, we tip our hats to you as well. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you guys next time.